Hi, Consume listener. This is Jamie Lewis. If you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you will definitely recognize the name Chris Lambert. He's been editing this show for years. I could not do it without him. But chances are you know him from another project, his podcast, Your Own Backyard, about the disappearance of Kristen Smart. With the trials of Paul Flores and Ruben Flores over, Chris is busy writing and recording the final episode for that project. But he graciously agreed to sit down with me to talk, not so much about the case itself and all the accolades the podcast has received, but to discuss his creative process. Chris has been a professional musician and singer-songwriter for many years, and he has 11 albums under his belt, so he knows a thing or two about how to create something artfully. We chatted about those, and about his choices for writing the music for the podcast, and about sequencing when it came to telling Kristen and the Smart Family story. And because this is technically a food podcast, yes, we talked about food too. Chris is a local boy, but he spent a lot of time in Louisiana, so he shares about his relationship with Southern food. Random, I know, but this conversation sheds light on what it takes to see a window of opportunity, calculate the angle, and take the leap. Just like so many farmers, chefs, winemakers, brewers, and entrepreneurs do in the food and beverage industry every day. Besides, this is my podcast and I can do whatever I want. So this time, I wanted to talk with my astute and generous friend, Chris Lambert. Enjoy. I was just saying before we started rolling that, um, you know, I have no intention of talking with you about the case. I mean, we can, and you said we can, but honestly, I mean, you've done so many interviews. I don't know what you could possibly say that you haven't already said. Yeah, it's, well, yeah, I think I've talked it pretty much into the ground but there are it's you know it's in everything I do now it's so ingrained in my life that it's pretty impossible to separate so I I really don't mind Mm. talking about that kind of stuff or even being asked questions that you're just dying to know the answer to because Mm. I understand from that perspective I've also um you know after the trial ended there was a little fundraiser in Arroyo Grande and I went there just to support them and realized then that Mm. there's a there's a weird um, space that I fill in the community now, which mm-hmm. is that a lot of people view me as sort of like the avatar of <laughs> justice or the avatar yeah. of like this long standing cold case finally being resolved mm-hmm. and they feel some peace from it and they just kind of need to talk to me and mm-hmm. connect with me and somehow that is comforting to them. And yeah. so I feel like it's sort of my role to just allow that to be, it's like, I know. I know what I am to people and I know mm-hmm. how they view me. But again, there's also so many other things going on in my life that I don't get to talk about. So yes. I'm an open book, whatever okay. you want. Um, I think also, I, I, as far as the hole that you fill in the community, I think also you have to give credit to how approachable you are. I mean, so many people have talked about um, how you are a solid, good guy and um, how you've been um, a really good landing place for not just the the journalism of the case, but for the smart family, for members of the community, that you are a safe place. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I wonder about that in the context of making something and becoming, you have become a character in this story now. What is it like to feel like your character and your that just that your character and personality are on display for people and they're trying to assess who you are, trying to drill down to who is this guy. Um, like I'm typically just 
an insecure person to begin with. So I'm always wondering like, what do people think about me when they see me? Like, what do they take away? Like mm. I I've for years had this sort of, I don't want to call it face blindness. Cause I'm very good with faces. Like I recognize people, but there is a part of me that doesn't fully have a good idea of how I present or how I look to other people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm always a little bit surprised when someone recognizes me in public and they say hi. And when I walk away, I just think, am I recognizable? Like, what is it about me that stands out? Maybe or, your voices. <laughs> I know there was a, a period of time there where when I would go through a Starbucks drive through, mm -hmm. there would be a little pause and they'd be like, are you the podcaster? <laughs> like they would recognize my voice before they recognize my face. Uh, but then there was just this inevitable like plastering of my face on the cover of the newspaper, like yeah. the front page a lot or being on television. I think now people recognize me physically too. Yeah. So, um, I don't know how it is anymore cause I don't come up here too often. Mm -hmm. It's a little far for me, but when I was coming up here for like the preliminary hearing, mm -hmm. I couldn't walk down the street without somebody either honking and waving or stopping me on the street to ask me if I was the podcaster. Mm -hmm. So, and that's a little overwhelming for someone who's kind of, um, sort of an isolationist in ways. Like yeah. I think I prefer to be alone mm -hmm. than to be in a group of people. My, my batteries recharge when I'm away from people yeah. and then I have the energy to see people, but that drains me yeah. again. And, um, but everybody's been so nice. Like nobody has ever come up and said anything negative to me. That's yeah. sort of reserved for internet comments, Yeah. but the community themselves have been, I think so like just full of gratitude mm -hmm. in, in some ways that feels like I don't deserve that much for it it's like i can only take so much credit for for you know oh, picking know. up the pieces yes. and getting it started sure but i could only push it so far and then other people had to take over and totally um, so there's a part of me that feels almost like a fraud and i think that's very typical mm. of of creative people in general but also particularly shy and insecure creative people it just never goes away and mm. i think even with you know, having national television exposure now and having amounts of money thrown at me to sell this story to Netflix and all mm -hmm. that, there's every day of my life I still feel like I am a total fraud. Like I've tricked people into thinking that I'm something, that I'm a, a journalist or that I'm an investigator or something, and really I'm not any of those things. So I kind of take every opportunity I can to sort of remind people that I'm a very normal mm -hmm. person, a very down to earth person. Mm -hmm. And also like as, as a sense of like encouragement to others, I try, I like to try to remind people like if I accomplish this, you definitely could because you're mm -hmm. probably, you know, more inclined to this sort of thing than I am. Just chances are. So, yeah, you know. but I'll push back on that because there's something, I remember one time you told me that, um, I think I was marveling early on when you said you were going to do a podcast about this case. Mm -hmm. And you, I said, you know, um, I felt this excitement, like in my, in my breastbone, like if anybody's going to do something like this and finish it, it's Chris <laughs> Lambert. And, um, and I don't, I don't, I mean, I didn't, and I still kind of don't even know you all that well, mm -hmm. but I, what I knew was that you took things and ran with them. And when it got hold of you, you would complete it. And I said something like, you know, um, it almost doesn't even matter that um, you've, it, it, by you saying that you had started reporting on it and researching that case, 
you, it was as good as you saying I finished the <laughs> podcast. Um, and you said, yes, I'm a finisher. I yeah. finish things. Yeah. I, one of my friends told me that years back and it's really stuck with me because I had never thought about it before that he said, if I am working on a project or have an idea, I know that if I get you or Allie involved, it will get done. Yeah. It just Allie like, is the inevitably same. Yeah. it will be finished because you guys see things, see things through. Mm-hmm. And if I think we both have a good sense of right off the bat, knowing if something is completable or not, yeah. sometimes people propose things and we'll think about it or we'll laugh and go, yeah, that would be fun. Mm-hmm. But we know it's like, there, there's just no way. But I think we know early on if something can be completed, mm-hmm. we get very excited about yeah. it. We start working immediately. And then I think we're both pretty good at the longevity of it because I think a lot of people who have a big idea and then get started on it are easily deterred by how much effort it takes mm-hmm. and how little reward you get. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think we've Or like questionable reward. With. Right. And I, I mean, like, um, a lot of people who tell us they want to start a podcast, mm-hmm. they usually drop off early on because they realize it's a lot harder than they thought it would mm-hmm. be, or they start it and then they realize, oh, nobody is praising me for this. I'm not getting good mm-hmm. reviews. Mm-hmm. It's not blowing up. I'm not getting a ton of downloads. So then they just trickle off and yeah. never do it again. But you have to be prepared for that upfront mm-hmm. that the reward should be something that that's coming from inside of you. Yes, you, it right. needs to be something that's fulfilling a piece of you. And I think too often, even people who looked at what I did with the case and mm-hmm. thought, I want to try something like that. I think their intention is usually, I want to blow up like that. Mm-hmm. I want to have a huge successful podcast. And you know, I, you were one of the first people I told I was going to do mm-hmm. this. I don't think I ever discussed with you. I think this is going to be huge. Or I think it's going to go viral. No. Or I think it was all about like, how do I tell this story yeah. and how do I make a documentary? It never crossed my mind that it would end up the number one podcast in the world yeah. for a little while or, or that or, it would be, or that you would help get this guy behind bars. Yeah. I mean, that was a hope that, that, that we would figure out where she was and what had happened to her, but it was definitely, the goal was let's document this woman's life Mm -hmm. who was taken in our community. And also like, what the hell happened? Why, Mm -hmm. why has it taken so long? How did this guy skate for so long? And that was my intention. So when I reached the end of that first arc of six episodes and that's all it was intended to be, (laughs) I thought, well, I've caught us up to present day. I did it. Like, that's what I wanted to do. And then it was like the next day, the sheriff's department is calling me like, Hey, if you want to sit down, we'll grant you an interview now. And then it just never slowed down from there because Mm. just one piece after the other was like, we need to talk to this person you talk to, and we need to find out how you figured this out Mm -hmm. and all of that stuff. So, but, but as I'm saying, the intention was never, this is going to be very successful in the podcast world, or I'm going to be in a Rolling Stone magazine Mm -hmm. from it. Those just incidentally happened along the way, but I think those might've scared me off if I was thinking in those terms because if i have to make something that's worthy of that or yeah yeah, that's scary right um as you talk i have so many more thoughts about that um it's funny to me that you you were in rolling stone magazine and you probably have wanted to be in rolling stone your whole life (laughs) but not for this but not for (laughs) this exactly um (laughs) with the case so you did six initial episodes and we talked a little bit about how to shape those to tell the story and i don't know that i helped at all i think mostly what you needed was the 
a, a moment to sit with someone and talk it out for yourself. Right. And yeah. it was it was actually pretty much already outlined and compartmentalized. It was. Well. By the time I, I think I reached out to you, I was like, I know what I want to do for the first six episodes. Yeah. And this is how I'm thinking of laying it out. And I think my intention was, let me know if I need to pump the brakes on this. Like, am I going crazy mm-hmm. to try to do something like this? And also, I think I was nervous about um, cliche things like cliffhangers. Mm-hmm. I remember bringing that up to you. Like, mm-hmm. is it manipulative or cringy to end an episode with like blank, blank, blank next time? And, and I, then, and I'm pretty and sure you, I said, are you crazy? That's a, that's how you hook people. Yeah. And, that's, and that's what keeps you wanting to listen. Yeah. And I was, it's I think, as you reminded me that I thought, you know, all the best storytelling that I enjoy certainly does that. Yep. And I've never found it cringy or manipulative but i again i thought i'm so insecure about the way i'm going to present this and and i've told you this funny story before too that you were the person that encouraged me like make yourself a character in the story like bring bring yourself into this and just sort of we want to know who you are we want to get to know who you are so it's not just some guy talking about this and so i started off the first episode with here's who i am it was very brief i think it was less very brief five to ten minutes of the first episode and that is like the only thing i've ever been criticized for is why is this guy talking about himself so much just get to the point okay so you don't talk all that much about it (laughs) you're also probably doing some negativity bias like seeing the the one negative thing oh yeah Uh, and there's much more than one negative thing i'm sure of it but for whatever reason that was early on and you latched onto it um i actually think that it might be critical to the public's understanding of you as a character in the story because you express you're so clear about look I am just a guy yeah you never I mean some of these people on cold case uh podcasts and all all this whole new genre of a thing that's becoming almost like uh you know a it's short-circuiting into itself, it feels like, a lot of the time. So people repeat. They, it's derivative. You know, people do something just like, I'm sure you have many imitators. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they do that, when somebody's imitating that, um, they often are playing the part of an investigative journalist mm-hmm. or, you know, playing a part. And you never did that. I imagine by the end when you did start having to call yourself a journalist for whatever reason to, you know, get into the courtroom, whatever, yeah. I would imagine you were pretty uncomfortable with that. I, I'm still uncomfortable with it. Mm. I have told many people and I get a lot of pushback because people are trying to encourage me to not be so negative. Just embrace it. You are a journalist. But what I think what I'm trying to do is not to be self-deprecating, but just to be upfront about the fact that I stumbled into this Mm -hmm. essentially Mm -hmm. i didn't go to school for it i'd never studied journalism i've always been a writer like Mm -hmm. from the time i was a toddler i was a writer and my parents knew that about me that everything i do is about making things and writing and creating but this type of journalism i had never practiced before Mm -hmm. but i ended up doing it and inevitably like undeniably i am a journalist now because i've done journalism and i've thought about um because a lot of people have tossed around the idea of me writing the book about yeah. this case, particularly Dave Congleton has been mm-hmm. very encouraging about well, that's his... somebody will write the book yeah. about this and it needs to be you because if it's not, it won't be done as well. Mm-hmm. And you are inside and you have the capacity to do it. And I've 
floated in my head the idea of titling it The Accidental Journalist. Mm -hmm. It's just a story Mm -hmm. about a guy who ended up in this impossibly strange uh, murder saga. Just how did I get here? Um, And it's, it's accidental, essentially. But that doesn't that doesn't take away from what it accomplished and it doesn't yes. take away from what it became. But I think it should serve as a reminder to people because I'm sure this is something I think about a lot is that when I talk to you initially about this case in general, and then you, you, you uh, referred me to high school friends Link of yours. And then I person, went to yeah. talk to them and they would refer me to three people mm-hmm. and I'd go talk to them. A lot of people said, I wrote into serial or I wrote into this podcast and said, cover this case. I did. And I never got I a response. Yeah. yeah. And everybody kept saying that to me. And I thought, how interesting that so many people had the impulse to go, this is a great story, yeah. but nobody had the impulse to go, I'm going to tell it. It was mm-hmm. always, I hope somebody qualified will do this. Mm-hmm. And I was just the only one foolish enough to go, I think I'll just tell it myself instead of waiting because I just don't expect to get a response from bigger podcasts and i thought maybe if i do it and i do it halfway decent Mm -hmm. the bigger people will pay attention and they'll take it and run with it yeah and like that didn't need to happen because by the end of it it had already blown up to that level so that's a big piece of it for me is now when people write into me and they say please cover my my cousin's murder please cover this murder from people are saying that thousands of people my email is my email is mostly now people trying to buy the rights to Mm the story or buy the documentary and put it out on their own network Mm -hmm. or people who are desperate for help. And it's heartbreaking because I know where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. I know from the inside now what the smarts have gone through over the years and how hard it was to get somebody to pay attention to this Mm -hmm. and to do something about it. But I also don't think I'm the person who wants to do this for the rest of their life. Well, Chris, you got into the Kristen Smart thing because it interested you. It grabbed you. It rested your attention. Right. And it had it 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 was part of my life. It yes, was something right. that I grew up with this story in my hometown mm-hmm. and it was a wound on my community. Yeah. So when other people write and they say please help me cover my daughter's murder, nobody's paying attention. I'm in uh Ohio and I just mm-hmm. think how could I possibly help? I just don't know hmm. what I, I think people have the misconception that I have the ability to solve cold cases that just inherently, <laughs> if I get involved, I can solve a cold case. Yeah. And I don't think I could, I don't think that that's a repeatable thing. I don't know that this would ever happen again, even if I did everything exactly the same. So I feel really badly, but my response is to sort of remind people how ordinary I am Mm -hmm. and how accidentally I ended up here. And that should be encouragement for people who go, please help me tell this story to go, wait a minute, I could tell this story. I could do this. And if you care about it and you're passionate about it enough to write me three paragraphs begging me to pay attention to it, Mm -hmm. you probably are the person who should be telling this story Hmm. because you've already got the passion for it. You just... I think people just don't know where to start. They're like, what do I do now? You know, and I've sat down with a lot of people over the years to teach them how to start a podcast from like recommending equipment to (laughs) how to get it on the internet and those things. So that's something I could help with. Mm -hmm. I've thought about giving like local workshops on, it's not so hard to start a podcast. Here's what you're missing or here's how easy it is Mm -hmm. or where to start. But solving a cold case is just like not, 
the it's not my wheelhouse. Yeah. It's just a coincidence that that's what this story yeah. was. Um, talking about next projects. So it sounds like you're kind of banding around the idea of writing a book, um, which I'm sure so much of the content is already there, but I would imagine you, I mean, th- these are very different media, you yeah. know, writing a book is extremely different from podcasting. Do you feel like, oh, I was going to ask you a question, but I'm, I'm just going to say it as a statement. I feel that podcasting and audio storytelling was the right medium for this story. I agree. And and part of the reason that I've declined to turn it into a docu-series or Netflix series or something is because I feel like it already achieved the goal. Yeah. And it also, I think, served its purpose. And what what this medium could do for this story that maybe film could not is that it gave people the ability to come forward anonymously, mm-hmm. share their story without fear of being recognized, even though I eventually learned people's voices are very recognizable. Hey. A lot of people who appeared anonymously on the podcast have been approached and yeah. said, was that you? But again, that's, I think, by close friends who know you and yeah. would recognize your voice. But the safety of being able to share your story without the whole world knowing how to find you or who you are mm-hmm. is something that you can only do in film with you know a shadow and a backdrop yes which is kind of awkward and maybe outdated at this point yeah. i don't see a lot of that and so i think it gave people that opportunity to mm-hmm. come forward and share information without fear of being outed mm-hmm. and also just that because i'm a musician mm-hmm. and because my background is in audio recording yeah. i already kind of knew how i wanted to approach this story i knew from the first how the episode started, it was going to be musically based. It's Mm -hmm. going to be about setting a mood and a tone and then talking over the top of it. And then a lot of field recording, you know, you Mm -hmm. hear my footsteps, you hear the birds tweeting, you hear the ocean waves. Mm -hmm. And that for me was like painting a picture. Yeah. Um, and also giving people an opportunity to feel like they're there, they're along Mm -hmm. for the ride. It's in their ears. Mm -hmm. They usually listen to it while they're driving or while they're walking or something. It's not it, in their ears. It, it's in their mind. I mean, really audio, especially with good headphones, yeah. it really does. It gets in your head. Right. It feels like you're thinking these things as they, you know, it, you start to kind of meld with the narrator. Right. Um, with regard to your music, I mean, how many completed albums? 11 albums that I've put out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the, over the course of since I graduated from high school, so okay. since 2006. So that's, you know, one every two years, something like that. Yeah, it used to be one every year. Yeah. And then I slowed down because I wanted to take my time and really make the albums I wanted to make. Mm-hmm. So the last couple came out two years apart, and that was a huge gap for me. I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm a person who needs to feel like I'm working on something every yeah. day. Mm-hmm. And when there's periods of time where I just don't have anything to do, I really quickly go into the space where I'm like, I'm useless. Just nobody needs me. I don't have a job. I don't serve (laughs) a purpose in the world. Um, So two years was a big gap for me. Now I'm at five years. Mm -hmm. So I have a five-year gap between albums now. Mm -hmm. But understandably, that was filled with 
21 episodes of documentary this other podcast, thing. And, yeah. uh, which also had a score. So it wasn't like I stepped yeah. away from music. I've also put out three instrumental like yep. meditation albums that are things that I'm really excited about and yeah. I like working on and listening to. Um, and I've written my album and I've recorded my album mm. over this five year gap. I just haven't put it out yet. Oh. So I've been working on it all along. These okay. are, but, and the frustrating part is some of the songs that haven't come out yet are from like 2018, 2019. Yeah. So there's, you know, I have a song about wanting to buy a house with Allie yeah. and we've already bought a house now and we already mm-hmm. have lived in it for a couple of years, but it's a song I wrote when we were considering it and mm-hmm. talking about whether we would ever be able to do that someday. So when it does come out, there's going to be pieces that feel like outdated a bit, mm-hmm. but I think the, well, we won't the rationale behind it is that it's sort of a story of my last several years of my yeah. life. Yeah. And, how has the music, aside from knowing how to, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of recording, how did all of the music and all of the records you wrote and, and released serve you in the Kristen Smart case? Um, how you, maybe yeah. how you crafted how you laid things out, you already were, you know, writing, putting together an album takes a certain amount of, well, there's a story there. Yeah. Even if it's not a concept album, there's a story that unfolds. Sure. There's an arc to it. Yeah. That, that when I do, um, I'm very much an album-based musician mm-hmm. as opposed to a lot of people who write a single or they they write with other songwriters and they try to come up with the, the hit. Mm-hmm. I've always been based around laying out an album outlining the shape of an album what's the first thing you want to hear when you press play i've always been it's always been important to me that the first song sort of establish a groundwork for what you're about to do mm-hmm. and that the second song immediately step it up mm-hmm. and be like now you're in for it the third song be like okay and here's the range of what mm-hmm. i'm going to be doing here mm-hmm. so there's a lot of thought that goes into sequencing mm-hmm. and i think that was a, a big part of the way i laid out the podcast is how do i start um when I came up with the idea to do a theme song, mm-hmm. I wanted to do every episode, have a cold open and then have the theme song just like kick you in yeah. the ass. Yeah. Yeah. I really, it, when it came in, I wanted it to be like, we're about to go on an adventure yeah. together. And, um, that's something that I think is very music musical of the mm-hmm. podcast that it, it is structured. Like you're listening to an album from start to finish. Yeah. And it's another reason why I didn't want to do advertisements because mm-hmm. I thought how obtrusive would it be? If you're listening to an album and right in the middle of the two, the two middle songs, you just have this break to oh sell gosh, something. It's so bad. Yeah. I'm listening <laughs> to something right now that, um, uh, it's a cold case from the eighties and, um, yeah, it is just so, so disturbing and like whiplash, you know, yeah. talking <laughs> about this girl who was murdered, always a girl who was murdered, um, and then all of a sudden, and there's not really any kind of a music, there's no cue that we're going into advertising. Yeah. So all of a sudden it's, hey, parents, do you want <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Right, yeah. I'm like, God, no, no. Um, yeah, so no advertising, totally. Yeah. And that was that was from the perspective of somebody who is very invested in an arc and not interrupting that arc. I could have done advertisements at the beginning or end if I really wanted to, but it just, it never felt that critical to me. Mm-hmm. And it, my goal was always, I want people to press play. And I think I achieved this. This is a big part of what I've seen in the comments from people is I think I achieved a place where when people press play, 
within a few seconds, they have goosebumps. Yeah. They yes. feel like I'm right here. Mm-hmm. The theme song drops and people are crying. I I'm, lost I'm my usually... mind the first time I heard that. I was <laughs> walking the kids to school. I walked them to school and then I dropped them off and I was walking back because I knew the first day that you were going to release it. Uh-huh. I had never heard anything. Um, and yeah, that first time that the music comes out, you absolutely accomplish what you set out to do because I just, I felt like my skin was going to boil off. You know, it was (laughs) so exciting feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And then getting to the end and having every episode end with this, this theme that was, I I worked very hard on the ending theme. Mm -hmm. Um, I was explaining to Allie along the way, it's, it's a tough tone to strike in this podcast with how to score it because a lot of true crime has like very dark music yeah. or very haunting, ghostly music. Mm-hmm. And for this one, the sense is more like desperation or longing. It's mm-hmm. like something mm-hmm. is missing, you know? Yes. And I wanted it to feel like musically like it was coming from her parents. Yeah. I wanted it to be their perspective. Mm-hmm. So each time that they're about to talk to Paul or like something happens, there's that sort of like that desperation of like, mm-hmm. we just need answers. And then ending every episode with this somber piece that, that I incorporated, um, cello into. Yeah. And I had the cellos do this glissando effect that mm-hmm. to me sounded like a whale call. Yes, it does. And this, I had read an article about when a whale loses its young, this noise that they make to try to find each other. And so that's what I was thinking about when I made that end theme. So every time that kicks in just from the first chord, Mm -hmm. for me, it had this very unsettling, but, um, compassionate or relatable feeling, right? That something is missing and we're trying Mm -hmm. to find it. And so I think people connected to those cues, Mm -hmm. the music cues and, they started to look forward to hearing them. Mm-hmm. So then when I got around to the courtroom episodes a couple years later, I re-recorded them with, with slightly different melodies and mm-hmm. slightly different instruments, but it was familiar. Yeah. And I got a lot of comments about, I really appreciated how you kind of called back this mm-hmm. theme, but now it sounds a little more hopeful or it sounds mm-hmm. a little more filled in, like something has happened or moved forward. So yeah, I think that just from thinking musically and thinking in terms of how to structure an album that definitely served me and how to structure one episode of a podcast, mm-hmm. which is about an hour, just around the same length of a, of a longer album. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I think that carried over. Totally. Um, it's so independently done. I mean, I can't remember if there are any metrics on it, uh, or, or what the information is about people who do independent podcasts, but they are very few. I mean, it, I mean, at that level of success and that level of download and exposure, yeah. um, and it does, I'm sure you've had lots of interest from, um, not just advertisers, but people who have podcasts that they want, um, that they want you to contribute to or whatever. What I, something that I loved about you keeping it so independent though, was how it honored the smart family. You know, you could have. You could have taken money um, from a sponsor or whatever, but um, you know you made the choice not to make it about that. And every episode, it always comes back to Kristen, which I think is another reason people trust you. Is it's not there's no internal there's no gain. You know you don't yeah. you don't get the sense that Chris Lambert is out for his own. You know for looking out for number one, right? I I think that came from also preparing and listening to 
what are the top 10 true crime podcasts? Uh-huh. What's doing well and what do people enjoy? And making notes on what I didn't like from them mm-hmm. because it, it's easy to sort of see what you do and pick out pieces that work. But I think it's a little harder to figure out what is not working and how can I avoid that? And Allie and I had, I don't know if I should say the name, but Allie and I mm-hmm. had listened to this one podcast that was very popular. Mm-hmm. And our thought the whole time was, I just can't stand this guy. I know. And every is. time it cuts yeah. back to his voice, I'm like, shut up. Yes. Like, I, and it's not, you know, in the same way that I said, people didn't want me to talk about myself. They're like, get to the point. That wasn't my thought. It was, I just don't trust you. Like yeah. everything you're saying is tinted with this, from this lens of me, I'm doing this because of me and I'm doing this and I don't want to hear that. I just want to hear you share what you've learned along the way. Mm -hmm. And, but it was the attitude that, that was off-putting. It Mm -hmm. was this sense that this guy really thinks that he deserves all the credit in the world. Mm -hmm. And then in the end, he was so far off base when things finally did move forward. He had completely missed. He had, he was looking at the wrong suspect. He had accused people of things they never did. And then when it got solved by police, he took all the credit for, I did this. And I've seen a lot of people have compared me to him and said, I really like your podcast. It reminds Mm -hmm. me of this guy. And I don't want to say I don't want to be like that guy because I know they're saying it from a place of appreciation, but it was something I took major notes on is don't do, don't say this. Don't Mm -hmm. put it this way. Don't bring the focus back to like, and you might've noticed I'm the one who achieved that. I mean, even at times, um, distancing myself when it started to come out in the courtroom about the podcast and the podcaster, just with no affect, just saying the defense attorney says a podcaster was involved in, spreading misinformation and the podcaster is present in the courtroom without even pointing the lens at myself yes. because it, it, I could talk all day about how that felt to be there and have that stuff said about me, but I didn't feel like that was my, I didn't, I, I felt like most people probably don't even care. Mm. And it turns out now that I've spoken to like the jury, spoken to people who were present in the courtroom that didn't grab anyone. Nobody really grabbed onto that theory that the podcaster's intention was to frame this guy and paint him. It was just like, no, it's a documentary Mm -hmm. and all the evidence happens to point at one person. What else was I supposed to do? Like dedicate a whole episode to maybe Scott Peterson did it because he went to the same (laughs) school at the same time. Right. It's outlandish. Mm -hmm. And I knew that going in that there were theories that were so off base that they're not worth talking about. But I talked about psychics and the theories they'd had over the years and common locations they yeah. settled on. And I never necessarily Actually loved thought that. Yeah. To me, it was interesting yes. because it's like, that's so much of the story here is how impossible it is to find a body when mm-hmm. in a location like this, where you have foothills and you have farmland, there's places to dispose yeah. of bodies and they're hard to find. Yeah. And so it was interesting to me. That's part of why it's taken so long. But again, negative comments. I mean, you pointed out, I do instantly look for the negative comment. If I see that I've got 10 new reviews, I'll scroll down until there's some stars missing. And then I'll go, what did they say? Yeah. And that's just, again, because I'm insecure and I'm always worried somebody's saying something bad Mm -hmm. and I want to see how awful they think I am. I want to see what it is that I did wrong. And that's something that I've You want to confirm your theory that you don't belong right. here. <laughs> I knew it. I knew that they, I knew nobody was going to like me, but yeah. that's, that's just something that comes from 
from as young as I can remember just being an insecure person and feeling like, mm-hmm. I don't know if I fit in. I don't mm-hmm. know if people like me. I don't know what people think about me. Mm-hmm. And then somebody says one mean thing about you. Mm-hmm. And for the rest of your life, you're just like, I still feel like I'm holding on to that yeah. in some way. And it's something that I've grown out of over the years, but it it's never really gone away entirely. I, I tend huh. to not, I don't read comments and I don't read reviews for a long time for the most part it's, you let it there's you let months it sit. between checking whereas like my mom every day she checks the reviews yeah. so when i do tell her you know months later did you notice i got like a bad review about this and she's like yeah i saw it as mm. soon as they posted it yeah and uh but i don't think it bothers her the way that it bothers me so yeah what, tell me about a time early on because i'm i'm curious about how somebody becomes a maker. I mean, I think of what you've done, especially because you did every part of the podcast. Um, I think of you as a maker or, I mean, I, I don't love this word because it's French, but an auteur, you know, somebody who really like comes out swinging with this big work. Mm -hmm. Um, and you've definitely done that. I'm curious how people become like that. Um, when you were young, you say that you started writing when you were really little. Yeah. Um, what, I mean, when you were little, what, tell me about the first time you felt insecure about something you'd made. Ooh. Because um, I don't think that starts from the very beginning. No, no. I think I definitely had a sense of like, I'm doing the best I can and I'm pretty good at this. And having like, fun. Yeah. I, yeah. I won an art contest when I was very five or six years old. I drew a picture of my mom mm-hmm. and entered it into a Hallmark contest and won first prize. And, oh, my gosh. Um, oh, I was disappointed that the prize was a basket full of stuff for her. And I was like, <laughs> what about me? Like, I drew it. But so that was like, I knew that I could accomplish things like that. Yeah. And um, I always got really good grades when I was young. I write a short story or something and get some comments from the teacher about like, this is incredibly imaginative. And those things really stuck out or, or like I was always the kid in class that the teacher would read my essay to everybody Mm -hmm. else and say, this is what you're shooting for. Mm -hmm. So I always had a sense that like, I think I'm pretty good at some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, the first time that I remember like really putting myself out there and just being like crushed was I sang in the eighth grade talent show Mm -hmm. and I had never sang in front of an audience before ever. And people knew me as a very quiet, shy person. And my friends wanted to start a band and play a song in the talent show, but none of them wanted to sing. And I was just, I just wanted to be in there with them somewhere. Like Mm -hmm. I want to be in a band. And so I was like, I'll sing. And I had no insecurity about it. It was like, I'll do this. And so um, the last day of eighth grade, we did it in the gym and the whole, you know, both sides of the bleachers were full of everyone in school and sang a Blink-182 song. Of course you did. And, um, like, you know, got a lot of applause, Mm -hmm. like, um, had like a great response, but for months afterwards, people would come up to me and go, you guys butchered that song. And like, I remember thinking like, it, it must have been me. Like, I, I don't think anybody directly said you're not a good singer, but mm-hmm. there was some, that was the first time I remember getting negative feedback about something that I had tried to do yeah. in front of that many people. And it instantly turned me into somebody who was like determined to prove them wrong or determined to do better. And so that summer I started my first band where it's mm-hmm. like, I sang for these guys, but I'm going to, I'm going to do this now and I'm going to show that I can do this. And um, started like getting really serious about guitar, which I'd had a guitar for years that I 
never really learned how to play properly. And that summer it was like between junior high and high school, I'm going to do everything I can to figure out how to do this well. Mm -hmm. And, uh, forced one of my friends to play bass for me. And I was like, we're a band. We're like, (laughs) we're going to do this. But really it was just like, he was sort of a support system. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really his interest. And it was really all about me feeling like now I have permission to to write music because I'm in this band and I've got to make music for us. And so I spent every day of high school from that point on writing songs. Mm -hmm. And it was, the goal became, can I get as good as the bands that I like, like starting from scratch. Mm -hmm. And my mom, uh, my, my parents split up when I was seven. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my childhood was going back and forth between their two houses. Huh. Your dad lives or lived in the South, I think, right? My dad didn't move back to Louisiana until after I graduated from high school. Okay. So he, um, yeah, my parents split and they both lived on opposite ends of Santa Maria. Mm-hmm. We always lived in Orchid and my mom always lived in Santa Maria. And so it was just bouncing back and forth between the two households, which was already difficult, just the logistics of where are we going to be on what day. But what started happening is my mom had moved in with her fiance Mm -hmm. and I brought over a cassette tape to show them what I had been working on. And they were very, very interested in like, Mm -hmm. wow, you did this, you made this. And, but, but him in particular, because I feel like with my mom, I just expect her to like everything I do. I just like, I, that's your job is to to encourage me and to be impressed with what I do. Mm -hmm. But this guy had no dog in the fight. It was Mm -hmm. just like, He's just this guy that my mom lives with. And he was like, whoa, this is really good. Like, how did you do this? And so he started asking a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. Um, Just what do you need? Like, what are you missing? And um, I was, you know, had a boombox cassette recorder with one of those little pinhole microphones in it, the (laughs) terrible quality. And I said, well, I don't have headphones or something. So he'd get me headphones Mm -hmm. and then bring the next few songs I wrote. And he's like, wow, what do you need now? I was like, Mm. well, they make like four track recorders where you can put multiple instruments. So then I could play everything on it. Mm -hmm. He got me a four track recorder, took it back, figured out how to use it and then started bringing songs back. So each time that I would transfer from my dad's house to my mom's, Mm -hmm. it would be like, let's see what you did this week. Like, what have you been making? And now you have a deadline, right? You have kind of like a a milestone. Yeah. And I have an audience. I have people that are waiting to hear what I'm going to do next. And also... I don't want to let them down. Like each time Mm -hmm. I bring something, I want to step it up and impress Mm -hmm. them more than they were last week. So it'd be like this time I wrote a four minute song that has like a guitar solo in the middle and I've never done that before. And it has Mm -hmm. an arc to it. And there were, there were periods of time over the years where I would bring like one song in particular would just totally pivot into the next chapter of like, wow, we didn't realize you could do that. Now what? And so he really like, he he really was the reason that I continued to try to improve was to see if he liked it or to see what he was going to think of the next piece. So then every time a birthday rolled around, there was never a question of what do you want? It was like, you need a bass. Aww. You need a saxophone. Let's see if you can figure out how to play a saxophone. Here, I found a clarinet. See if you can do something with this. So every time a birthday or Christmas rolled around, it was like, we're just going to keep buying you instruments mm. and recording equipment until 
you feel like you have what you need. What and a cool guy. What's that person's name? That's Dale. I'm sure you've met Dale. Dale still goes to all of my events. He's always Dale. with my mom. He's So they never ended up getting married. Yeah. They lived together for several years, um, but they've remained best friends. Mm-hmm. So they hang out all the time. He goes everywhere with her. Um, when I have an event or something, he came up to the trial. And, mm-hmm. um, and Dale is an artist himself. He worked at the library as well mm-hmm. as my mom. And that's how they met. But when he retired from working at the library, he bought an apartment or a condo and set it up to make art. And he's been writing a book for like 12 years now. And it's a very like detailed, um, he calls it an illuminated manuscript. Oh, yeah. You know, like they would write in like the Renaissance days. Yeah, yeah. And so he spends a week on each page doing like the border and filling in the colors. He's got this giant magnifying glass and Mm -hmm. he spends a week on a page. And when it's done, he sets it aside and moves on to the next page and it just keeps expanding. He's like, um, he used to update us, but it got so far. He's like in the eight hundreds now, page 800 something. And he's just going to keep writing it until he feels like it's done. And his only goal is to just be creating all the time. Yep. So it, it, he doesn't have this end goal of when this comes out, I'm going to be a huge successful author. Mm-hmm. It's just every day of his life is working on something about this. Mm-hmm. And um, so he, I think from being that sort of person mm-hmm. and then being sort of trapped at the library and that not mm-hmm. being really where he wanted to be in life, he saw this young person who was suddenly starting to step out and try, yeah. you know, like, like a baby giraffe, like figure out how to walk mm-hmm. in art. And he like latched onto it. And he's also a huge music fan. Mm-hmm. He's somebody who used to, you know, take his allowance and go to the record store and buy the new Jimi Hendrix record, yeah. peel it open and then listen to the whole thing with his brother. Mm-hmm. And they would talk about it and they'd talk about, did you notice the guitar solo here? And, and they've got the bassist from this band playing on it. And mm-hmm. so He's told me several times over the years, your music is as good as anything mm-hmm. I've ever heard mm-hmm. and ever listened to. And mm-hmm. I like, regardless of what you think of it, it sounds just as good as anything else. Mm-hmm. And so he's always pushed me to believe in myself mm-hmm. and keep creating. So whereas um, my dad was, um, even though I was with him for half of the time, he never asked questions about my music. He just mm-hmm. wasn't really... Um, I don't know if he wasn't interested. He's just a little more withholding emotionally. Maybe doesn't know as much about it or have the same, like regardless of whether it was your music or not, maybe just not interested in music at all or felt felt ill-equipped. Yeah, he liked when stuff was on the radio, he'd turn it up and be like, you got to listen to this one. Mm -hmm. But he just never really, um, I mean, he's still this way to this day that when we do talk on the phone and check in, he just doesn't ask a lot of questions about me. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of like, surface level like here's what i did yesterday here's what i'm going to eat he's from louisiana so louisiana is a food-based culture and when you go there it's all about what we're going to eat for breakfast Mm -hmm. lunch and dinner and then we're going to talk about what we're going to eat the next day (laughs) and we're going to talk about the crab boil we're going to have this weekend they come from the french i mean yeah yeah. (laughs) and so that um that is how my dad processes things is he talks about what's going on that day and specifically about eating Mm -hmm. and so it's just never been um something he's taken much interest in or asked me any questions about. Mm -hmm. So to have somebody like Dale on the other end, um, just constantly like, what are you working on now? And what do you want to do? And like, what are you Mm -hmm. thinking about? And then also there's a a juxtaposition with my brother, who's just a year younger than me. Mm -hmm. Um, We're 14 months apart and very close. 
and completely different personalities. And so my brother was a little bit of a struggle for my mom and Dale when Mm -hmm. we were growing up that it was like, Chris is so open and um, easy to understand. Like there's no questions for Chris. It's like, we know what he's doing. Mm -hmm. We know what he needs. We know what he's working on. What do you want to do? What do you want to be? And he just never really cared. It was just a lot of, "Uh, I don't know. And so they encouraged him over the years to try several different things. And Mm -hmm. what is it that we can push you into or support you through? And he just kind of didn't like the idea of that, just sort Mm -hmm. of cringed at it a bit. And so we've ended up very different people, very different Mm -hmm. paths in life, but he had the same, same support system, but very different interests. And so that's, that's led me to think a lot about how far back your sort of, uh, your personality is formed that Mm -hmm. it almost feels like we were born with these brains and that regardless of what would have happened or what situation we had been in, that Mm -hmm. we would have ended up this way, that, um, we just had very different interests and and formed very differently. Nature and nurture are so, it's very hard to know where one starts and stops and the other begins. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about that Blink-182 song too. Um, if you, you know, another person very easily could have said, oh, people are telling me that we butchered it. I'm never going to try again. In fact, I think that maybe the average person would do that. I shouldn't say average, but most people probably would be like, well, if I'm bad at that, I'm getting, you know, negative criticism about that. I'm not going to do anything like that ever again. Right. But the uh, determination to try again. I just read this morning um, that the word essay comes from the French word SAA, which means to try. And I love that so much. I feel like people who have varied interests, who are curious and feel that they can replicate to a certain degree the quality of that which they, you know, see, hear, listen to, taste, whatever. People who come out with that like brash thought that maybe I could do this too, are those are the people who try. You know, the mm-hmm. people who try and make the attempt are the ones who, um, you know, you you can't make any, um, you can't hit a home run unless you swing. You know. Yeah. So. I I think that as an artist and as a maker, that is a hard thing to swallow because just because you try doesn't mean that you will succeed or doesn't mean, you know, there are probably people out there who have done, well, I know it, people out there who have done work at the same quality as yours, who will never be found, whose yeah. work will never land And maybe it's for one reason or another, but also maybe just there isn't a reason. Um, And that's a really hard, it's hard to try when you know that there may never be an audience for it. Yeah. But you, so when you did the Kristen Smart case, actually, no, backing up to like some of your first records that you wrote and released, there was no guarantee that anybody would be listening. Right. Did, I mean, did you get much of a response at the beginning or even along the way? Um... It's, you know, it's tough to say, like, it feels like I put out my first album and locally there were people who knew me or people who had come to shows that were excited to have something they could go home and listen to. Um, I think I got a couple records in before I made one that 
I remember people talking about, like mm. I put out this mm-hmm. album that, that was a concept album and it told the story from start to finish. And I put a lot of thought into how am I going to present this? Mm-hmm. And I had a listening party for it. And Dale Fun. helped me set it up. Dale helped me set up surround sound speakers and we mm-hmm. rented out the lion's den. And it's like, mm-hmm. I want everybody to come and sit like you're watching a movie mm-hmm. and just listen. It's only 40 minutes long. Yeah. Just listen to the story all the way through one time and then you know, put the CD in your car and never listen again, but just give it one shot Mm -hmm. and don't just have it be background music. And a lot of people came out and I remember for a while people were talking about that. Mm -hmm. Like, Oh, did you hear what Chris Lambert did? Like, did you hear Chris Lambert's album? Mm -hmm. So then the pressure was on me to like, how do I ever follow this up? How am I ever going to do as good as this again? What if this is the last thing I ever make? And that was only my third album. So I think each time that I've put something out, there's always been that that insecurity or that thought that like, what if I can't ever replicate this or do yeah. better than this? So, so it, is that, sorry to interrupt, but is that happening right now for you with, I mean, you've had outrageous response, yeah. outrageous. Yes. Are you, how are you feeling about what's next? I think, well, it's helped me understand better. Cause like, as you said, there are people who are doing things better than, or at least as good as I am mm-hmm. that will just never get the kind of response that I did. Yeah. And that's what Dale had always said about my music is like, I'm hearing other things on the radio that aren't as good as what you're putting out. Mm -hmm. And yet they're getting the attention and you just might never be discovered. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Like you have to be okay with that. And he's like, but eventually somebody's going to find you. Eventually you're, you're going to get recognized. Mm -hmm. And so it's something that I ended up getting recognized in a completely different field for a completely (laughs) different reason to an extent that I never expected to. I did, like you said, got into Rolling Stone magazine mm-hmm. for something I never expected to. But my mindset at this point is I did the best I could do. Mm-hmm. It got a better response than I ever thought. It helped to resolve this major wound. And I I crave to get back to the way that I was before and the music that I was making before with the complete understanding that when I put out my 12th album, Mm -hmm. it will never get the same response that this podcast did, that it will, I'm going to drop back down to the numbers that I was at prior, Mm -hmm. which in retrospect now seem abysmal and and (laughs) terrible, but it's something that could compare. Right. And so it's not like that this success has set me for life and that now if I make an album, it's going to be a hit. It won't, it will be, exactly what it always was, was it, it will be true to me. It will be the thing that I feel like I need to make right now. But the people who listen to it are going to be the same people who always listen to my music mm-hmm. and very few uh, newcomers. Yeah. And that's something that I'm very comfortable with right now mm-hmm. that just feels um, familiar mm-hmm. and it feels um, comforting to have that and know that I make music I've always made music and I always can make music. And I also can always make documentary podcasts now. Hmm. And I know that I've got mm-hmm. that in my back pocket. So if I put out an album and in a year I start feeling really depressed mm-hmm. and just thinking like, wow, I miss, I miss what was going on a year or two ago. I still have the ability to sure, do it and totally. know that I could do it again. It might not hit the same level that it does, mm-hmm. but I can always give it a shot. And I've also had people from Dateline and mm-hmm. in uh, 2020 and 48 hours that I've sat down for interviews and they've said, have you thought about like applying to work here? Like, mm-hmm. have you thought mm-hmm. about just, you know, apply to work at Dateline? Like we're looking for people like you. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, 
I just miss music. I just miss making music. That's like a very uh, familiar place for me and something that just feels like where I need to be right now. But I don't know if that will be forever or yeah. if that's just for right now. Yeah. But um, it especially when the case, you know, it got into the courtroom mm-hmm. and things started getting very, very heavy and tense and my name started getting thrown around yeah. and subpoenas <laughs> served at my oh door. Oh my gosh, and I forgot that. all about that. Yes. So that, when that happened, I remember um, the day that I was subpoenaed at, during the prelim, I had called my mom and I was sitting in the parking lot and I hadn't even been served yet. This was before I was served. And I just told her, I am so exhausted mm-hmm. and I'm so, I'm just worn out emotionally, mm-hmm. just in every way. I am so tired of like uh, the amount of work that I'm doing every day to sit in the courtroom for eight hours and then go home and type every word I had written ludicrous. It's too much work. And it's also a lot of negative stuff coming out Mm -hmm. about me and a lot of negative stuff being thrown around and accusations and, and, and then combined not to mention with burial sites and Mm. like human decomposition stains Mm -hmm. and things I wasn't emotionally prepared for. And I just told her, I don't know how much longer I can do this. And she's Mm -hmm. like, you got this, you can do it. I walked back into the courtroom and Mm -hmm. I'm served a subpoena. And so I went home that day and I started like, I have this batch of songs. It's been so long since I put an album together. I think it's time to just start working on it because Mm -hmm. I've got a recording studio in my backyard now. Mm -hmm. I have the, the tools I need, but I just don't have the time. So now with this subpoena, it's like, all right, I'll spend a couple days in the studio and just start laying down the piano. Yeah. Just just lay down the piano for every song. And that's where, like, for the first time, music stopped being this thing I felt like I had to do because it was my oh, life. Oh, now it's a life raft. Now it's like, yeah, this is going to save me because yeah. it's something I know how to do. It's something I want to do. And I just haven't allowed myself the time to do it. Mm. So I started putting together the album during those breaks. Mm-hmm. And then especially the break between the prelim and the trial, I thought I'm going to try to like put this album out and have it be out in the world mm-hmm. before the trial starts so that when yeah. I am sitting there, I at least have finished something and feel like I completed it. Mm-hmm. And, um, it just, it took a long time and the timelines, legal timelines just are so fluid and they move yeah. so easily that I wasn't able to really sit down for a long period of time. So I'm still finishing it yeah. up, but it's been, uh, it's been, uh, uplifting in a way mm. that it wasn't before this, where it felt like I got to finish the album or I got to do this. Mm-hmm. I got to write a song for this. And now it's like, that's what I want to be doing more than anything else. Yeah. You, it makes me laugh. Uh, when you say that Dateline 48 hours, these guys are trying to hire you because I remember before, uh, I think before you even really started on the, um, Kristen smart podcast, that you were trying to get a job with our local weekly yep. as a proofreader, I think. <laughs> right. And they didn't hire you. And I, it's so funny to me now because, um, well, just we don't, you have to try. You must try to get those things. And then you have to be rejected for the next thing to be possible. I mean, it's hard to be in the middle of that. But now watching how far you've come, it's like, oh no, he had to, he had to be, um, rejected from that possible job to be able to work on this new thing and, and to give it all of his time. And, um, the cats are fighting. Hey, 
He's so mean to her. <laughs> it's hard to watch. Um, you also said something about being depressed. Are you okay talking about any kind of mental health yeah. stuff? Do you struggle with mental health stuff? So in the last 10 years or so, I had this anxiety disorder just sort of come out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. um, I've never really struggled with any serious depression or anything like that. But anxiety is something that I didn't even really know what it was. I just, mm -hmm. the generalized term of anxiety just means I'm nervous about this thing I have to do. But there were these symptoms I started experiencing, like when um, I'd be doing an interview over the phone for like the local paper or something. Mm -hmm. And I started noticing that I, I wasn't breathing the whole time. I was just mm -hmm. holding my breath the whole time. And then so they move on to the next question and I have to press the mute button and just start going, <laughs> <sighs> or, or I would lay down flat on my back and just try to like meditate and just like do deep breathing and stuff. And, uh, I thought, well, that was weird. I've never had that happen before. And then it started happening every time I talked on the phone mm -hmm. and was like, what is wrong with me? Like, I, I don't feel nervous and I'm not like, it's, it's just like the way that I yeah, not in any cognitive exactly. way. Exactly. Yeah. And then I started having these other things where like, um, just like hypochondriac tendencies where I think anything I feel that's slightly unusual, it's like, I must be dying. I just know I'm dying <laughs> somehow. And Allie laughs and like, she's talked me down from a lot of panic attacks where it's like, mm -hmm. I just, I know I'm dying right now. She's <laughs> like, you're not dying. But, but a, mm -hmm. probably five or so years ago, I started experiencing, um, this like, complete unsettling um idea that i was in the middle of a heart attack that i was having a heart mm -hmm. attack like i could feel it happening and it's like all the symptoms that you hear about like my arm has gone numb and i can't mm -hmm. feel it and there's a sharp pain in my chest and i can't breathe right and um and then it would go away after like an hour it was like i think i was just dying mm -hmm. but nothing happened and and it didn't actually like lead to anything yeah. And I started reading about it. I finally Googled it. Like, is this something that I should go to the doctor for? Is it something is actually going on with my heart? And what I found out is that it's a very common symptom of anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. And and then the thing about, you know, holding my breath and stuff like that, mm -hmm. it was like, wow, all of these symptoms are things that have started happening to me that I didn't even realize were all connected to this one thing. Mm -hmm. And once I started viewing it as that, um, being able to talk myself down from it with reminders that that you know what this is because this mm -hmm. happens to you and it's been a lot less severe since I put a name to it, mm -hmm. but I had no idea what it was or where it came from. And I'd been living kind of blissfully unaware of that stuff. I'm, my life is pretty simple and, mm -hmm. and I don't have a lot of those issues, but this thing just came out of nowhere and just completely took over my ability to think rationally mm -hmm. and, and, um, yeah, so that's that's the major one that for me has just sort of been debil debilitating at times mm -hmm. that there's been times where Allie and I will go to see like a stage performance mm -hmm. and as soon as the lights go down I'm like I'm I'm going to die in here. Like I just mm -hmm. know I'm going to I'm going to have a heart attack and I'm not going to be able to get out or I'll get like a tiny little tickle in my yeah. throat and I'm like, I'm going to ruin this performance. I'm going to make a noise. That. Yeah. And then it's like the idea of being mm. trapped in, in between people where it's like, if I do start choking or something, mm -hmm. I'm going to be an inconvenience, yeah. um, is, is really what triggers it. And I heard at some point somebody told me the majority of people who choke to death mm 
do it in a bathroom because they're so afraid of being judged or inconveniencing other people. And I thought that's so relatable because that's my, my entire instinct is don't, don't inconvenience anyone else. And so, but, but it is something that I feel like I've been dealing with better since I found out what it was. Mm -hmm. Um, even in, this is sort of more, uh, upbeat or positive take (laughs) on it. Um, I have a condition called synesthesia Mm. that, wait a minute. Yes. Uh, you can see colors or see sound and smell colors and yeah, all that. It's basically senses overlap in the yeah, brain. Yeah. And I have a very strong uh, sense of this with everything. And mm. it's something that as from the time I was a baby, I remember connecting things that now looking back, it's like, yeah, there's no connection whatsoever between January and maple smell. But for me, there is. Mm-hmm. It just uh, can't disconnect them. But numbers and letters and colors, um, to the extent that if I see the number three and it's green, it mm-hmm. kind of makes me a little ill. It just mm. because it's so it needs to be orange. It's oh, orange gosh, in my head. Isn't that funny? And so it's something that I'd always had my whole life that I didn't know what it was called until I was like 20. Mm-hmm. And somebody talked about it and I Googled it and I was like, whoa, that sounds like this thing I've always had. And I took a test mm-hmm. and I got like, it was like a 99.86% synesthesia wow. Wow. like rate or whatever they call it. Um, it was like, okay, well, that's very helpful mm-hmm. just to be able to give it a name mm-hmm. and then know that. I, I'm different from other people. When I mm-hmm. say this to someone and they give me a look, it's it's I'm not crazy. It's just how my brain developed. Yeah. Um, and I it it's something I learned. It comes from rapid brain development at a very early age, mm-hmm. while the the sections of your brain are still kind of growing and and they accidentally start to overlap, overlap. into other territory. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it's but in the same way as anxiety knowing what it's called and knowing that it's something that other people have has Mm -hmm. really been helpful in just accepting it and learning how to deal with it because synesthesia is it's mostly a positive experience for me yeah it's something that's probably helped me with music it's helped hundred percent learn chords and memorize Mm -hmm. melodies and things it i memorize phone numbers and addresses very well no you have a crazy it's insane chris your your ability to recall and remember things which has served you so well in um, on the Christian Smart podcast for sure, yeah. yes, for sure. Because I can't. I mean, I'm. I have the opposite of what you do in terms of. Um, I just can't remember anything. I don't remember <laughs> anything I read. I don't remember what happened yesterday. Um, so you know the details of that case. It's the kind of case that after 25, 26 years, there's a lot to hold there. Yeah. And you were able to do that. So yeah, you do have a a crazy good memory. Yeah. And so I've learned a lot of that comes from just connecting things to colors Mm -hmm. that my brain is filing it automatically. It's not something I put a lot of effort into. Yeah. So that's the positive side of it. And with anxiety, it's a darker sort of, it's it's a lot more to deal with, Mm -hmm. but then finding out oh, all of these things I've been experiencing are all coming from this place. And now that I know it, just being able to deal with it better. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, that's that's really the biggest struggle I've had. Yeah. Um, you, I remember there's a song that you have called Be Here Now, mm-hmm. which is a Ram Dass concept, right? Mm-hmm. Do you, have you ever done any uh, meditation or any like um, mindful stuff 
So when I was working That's on the official term, mindful <laughs> stuff. Yeah. My last album, um, co- the constant education of Christopher Lambert, the whole concept of that for me was me learning how to be present mm. because it was something that I felt like I was dwelling too much. I was spending too much. I had just put together an album about my childhood, mm-hmm. um, that I put out in 2016 and I, Allie and I drove across the country to see my dad for the first time in like 10 years Mm -hmm. and introduce her to him and see my family for the first time in forever. And so I spent a lot of time going through like photo albums from when I was a kid. Um, I had this very, like my grandpa died in a very strange and unresolved way. Mm -hmm. And on the drive to Louisiana, we stopped in New Mexico to see like the house he had died in and Mm -hmm. trying to piece this all this stuff together that were fragments of my childhood and upbringing that felt unresolved in some way. And so I'd spent so much time focused on that. I was like, now that I've said it and it's like ripping off a bandaid, it was, it was painful to do, but now that it's out there, I feel like I need to work on just being in the moment and not focusing on that so much. And so there was a good two or three years of my life where I was doing, uh, like transcendental meditation Mm -hmm. and, um, reading a lot about Zen Buddhism Mm -hmm. and trying to put into practice those sorts of things. And so that whole album is about that, like the things that I got out of it. Um, I I got very good at meditating. It's something that I stopped practicing when I started working on the case because Mm -hmm. I just was so focused on that and putting it all together. And Mm -hmm. um, it's something that I've stepped away from. But when I was doing it, it was like, completely beneficial. And I think I wrote some of my best lyrics from that Mm -hmm. and, um, very self-reflective in a way that I hadn't been able to be before that, that Mm -hmm. I started that, that was the beginning of the journey of talking about me and my life, as opposed to trying to write a song about like, I saw a girl and she, you know, it's like, I'm not writing songs for the world anymore. I'm writing songs to to excavate and dig into who I am and figure out why I am the way that I am. Yeah. It's empowering. Yeah. So that, that entire album is sort of my journey with mindfulness and meditation and every song on there corresponds to one of the, um, I think they call them the eight noble truths of Zen Buddhism. And so every song (laughs) is one of those pillars. And, um, so now the album that I've been working on is closing out this trilogy of albums, my past and my present. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm making an album about my future, which a lot of it uh, comes with anxiety and fear and worrying about things. And so I'm writing about the process of learning to deal with planning for my future without letting it freak me out or kill yeah. me. Yeah. Um, and so a lot, also a lot of the, um, a lot of the lyrics I've been, this is something that just from years and years of songwriting that I figured out early on is sometimes what I'm writing about isn't even fully clear to me until years later. Mm -hmm. And I look back and go, of course I was writing about that. That's what was going on in my life. And so a lot of subconscious things that made their way into the lyrics of the new one are me learning how to, um, coexist with Allie who I've been with for 13 years now. We've been dating. We lived together for the last uh, nine years. Mm -hmm. And I had to step away to, you know, I stepped away for a while to work on myself and, you know, Mm -hmm. write about my childhood and learn mindfulness. And then I stepped away really to investigate a murder and uh, (laughs) tell this story and stuff. And through it all, coming back to this place where it's like, and 
she's still here through it. Yeah, and yeah. like, we're still doing this thing. Like we're still, still running. Mm-hmm. And, um, so a lot of the lyrics I'm starting to realize like, wow, I'm being very, very honest and blunt mm-hmm. about how I feel about that and mm-hmm. what that means for our future. And so it's a little, um, exposing Mm -hmm. but that's Mm -hmm. what this trilogy of albums has been about for me is exposing some of the the things I've discovered about myself yeah she's been a real partner for you uh like beyond you know beyond the the standard relationship she has a lot of the same values that you do I mean artistic and creative values um qualitative values she she gets you she also adds something to the relationship that's different. Like you don't overlap everywhere. She offers complimentary um, and challenging stuff. And she, um, she's a huge part of the success of the podcast. Um, a huge part. And, um, and your music too. And mm-hmm. she has her own creative pursuits that are just off the charts. And it's, I, I would have to imagine that the two of you are greater than the sum of your parts, you know, that mm-hmm. you hone one another and spur one another on yeah it's uh, i think the only like real struggle we had was trying to figure out how do we live in the same house and still both be as creative as we mm-hmm. were before we moved in together and how do we make room for each other so yeah. it, initially we were sharing a two-bedroom apartment upstairs next to an airport and me trying to make music and her doing photography and and her magazine that she mm-hmm. started when we were living there and figuring out how to give each other space. Like today you're going to go to Starbucks and you're going <laughs> to stay there and I'm going to work at home. And then next time I'm going to go to a coffee shop, you're going to stay here mm-hmm. and we're going to figure this out. So when we bought our house that we're in now, a big selling point was that in our backyard, we have several dwellings that mm-hmm. the previous tenants had built. Um, there's a, like a she shed essentially yeah. and a little workshop that they had used as a mechanics garage. And we turned one into a photography studio mm-hmm. and one into a music studio. Yeah. So th- it's like something that we've developed is this, this space where we can both do our own thing mm-hmm. without getting in each other's way. Yeah. And, and yeah, like you said, we, she fills out the parts of me that are sort of, uh, um, not as strong like my she's she's very assertive and she's Mm -hmm. she'll get on the phone and and book a tour for me before i will Mm -hmm. and um she's good at organizing things and and uh making sure that everybody comes together and does their part she's Mm -hmm. really good at getting a lot of people in the room at the same time Mm -hmm. and those are things that i stay away from just (laughs) don't like to have to deal with yeah for sure oh my gosh okay well um we have to give the people what they want. So talking about food, you told me that you um, ate very poorly throughout the making of the podcast, um, but that you're getting back on track with that. So what what are you eating right now? <laughs> so this was, it was mostly during the trial, to be fair, that like yeah. once the trial began and I was living up in Monterey County, uh, every day was just about being in the courtroom, taking notes. You got a, an hour long lunch break and then you have to be back at this time. Mm-hmm. And so it was about, you know, what drive throughs are nearby and what mm-hmm. can I eat as quickly as possible? So there's like a Taco Bell nearby and it's like, I don't want to eat Taco Bell every day. <sighs> Even hearing and, that makes uh, me sad. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, uh, but, but I also didn't want to venture too far because mm-hmm. it's like, I, it's very important that I be in here. So I found like a, an amazing Mexican restaurant. I mean, mm-hmm. like 
the best Mexican food I've ever had was right around the corner. What's it from, called? It's called Tacos Don Beto. Okay. And uh, every, all of us, I mean, the the prosecution team, the <laughs> media, I think several jurors, like they flocked to this place because it was so good. Mm. And um, so just, but I was eating a lot of that to try to just sort of be as quick as I could and then get mm-hmm. back. And then at night, all I was doing was taking notes. So I'm just sitting in a courtroom all day and then sitting in a chair until the time I go to bed. So it was just a lot of stressed. Yeah. Fully stressed, barely sleeping. I think Mm -hmm. I got about four hours of sleep per night Mm -hmm. and it, I mean, it really took its toll in a lot of ways that now are starting to part, like the clouds are parting Mm -hmm. and it's like Mm -hmm. the sun is coming out and I feel good again. And so Allie and I, um, had been discussing for a while, we need to detox when mm-hmm. this is over because mm-hmm. she's doing the same thing I am that we're apart from each other and we're just trying to eat as conveniently as quickly yeah. as we can survive. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like, we really need to detox for a while and just get back to, um, how we used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, we're healthy eaters. We get, you know, we subscribe to the tally farms box. Yeah. Nice. Allie makes several great dishes from stuff like that, that, mm. um, that we were eating prior. So, we had watched the documentary about Jared Fogle, the subway guy, and it's mostly a documentary about his <laughs> horrific crimes and the things that he did. But the takeaway sorry, for us, laugh. the takeaway was really, um, wow, this diet really worked <laughs> because I mean, he started at 400 something pounds and right? got down to like 180. And then they have several other people they interviewed who followed the Jared diet yeah. that lost a ton of weight. And they're talking now about his crimes mostly, yeah. but we're looking at the screen like, what are they doing? Like what, <laughs> what exactly? Because I think when I was growing up and people talked about Jared and the subway yeah. diet, I think the misconception for people was just keep doing what you've been doing and eat a meatball sub and you'll start to lose weight. Yeah. If you just go to subway, it's going to make you lose weight. And of course that doesn't work yeah. because you're just adding on top and you're a lot of the stuff subway has is just as bad as getting a hamburger totally. or French fries. But with this diet in particular, it's uh coffee for breakfast a six inch turkey sub for lunch and then a foot long veggie delight for dinner. And that's all you eat during the day. Is that how you're eating? Yes. And then combined with walking, which is something that I could not do during the coverage of the trial. And so we've been doing it for, I think almost a week now. Yeah. And both instantly, like I feel lighter. I feel like my, the biggest thing I noticed is that I have a ton of energy Mm -hmm. that I didn't have prior to this. And it could be from the culmination of all of it from the sentencing finally taking place, feeling that can, I can relax and breathe again, uh, and get back to my music, Mm -hmm. but also eating better than I have been not loading up on carbs and then sitting all day. And so just a couple days in, it was like, I am pouring out ideas. I'm like filling out notebook pages every day. Um, Every time Allie always sleeps in about an hour or two after I do. Mm -hmm. So I get a lot of my writing done in the morning when I wake up and when she does wake up and it's like, I just, by the time she's awake, I'm like, I have so many ideas for what I want to do today. And I think it's coming from that, from just a caloric deficit. We're eating 1200 calories a day. Mm -hmm. And, um, and also probably drinking coffee on an empty stomach when I first wake up yeah. has more of an impact than drinking it alongside breakfast. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just You be careful though. Be careful. That sounds like it sounds um 
I, I'm, but I, okay. So I want to like criticize the 1200 calories because <laughs> very few people can sustain that. But I also want to acknowledge it when you walked in the door today, I was like, oh, Chris is like, you, you clearly had a <laughs> renewed energy. And yes. like you said, it could be from a number of things, but I'm super happy that you found something that, I mean, we really are what we eat. So, yeah. um, I'm happy that you found something that's manifesting good energy and a lightness for you. Yeah. Well, we had tried, I think last year we did the Nutrisystem diet. Where, you guys like, are like 25 years behind. <laughs> <laughs> We're, um, Nutrisystem. Well, before that I did Atkins. Yeah. You know the Atkins diet? Oh, so yeah. I did the Atkins diet with my family when I was in high school mm-hmm. and I lost a ton of weight that way. How much like, is a I ton was, of weight? Like, um, I don't remember how I was initially, but going from like my freshman year to my sophomore year, mm-hmm. I was six foot one and one thirty five. Mm, wow! So like I got down to like I mean I was Whoa. probably too small. Yeah. Um, but I also I think because of insecurities and other reasons yeah. I had like body dysmorphia and mm-hmm. felt like even when I was losing a ton of weight I never felt like it was enough. Yeah. And so my family did it and had success, but then they got off of it. Mm-hmm. I went back to like the induction phase and I stayed there mm-hmm. because I was like it's working. Like the number keeps going down. Yeah. But it was not about health for me. It was yeah. just about like not looking fat yes. was essentially where it was coming from, yeah. which comes from, you know, I grew up uh, with women in my family who just always feel like they're fat. They're yeah. just that, that was, uh, I think a very nineties mindset yes. was yeah. not wanting to look fat. And that, that doesn't really work anymore. I don't think mm. many people think that way. I think they anymore. do. I think they do. And I think <laughs> that they're getting better about hiding it. I don't know. That's just my perception. Maybe. I think a lot of people are, have body dysmorphia. Yeah. Yeah. But that was definitely the goal of that for me. So I knew it worked, but what I didn't understand is, is that a lot of the reason that any of these diets work is just limiting your calories, I mean, like yes, less yes. portions and more movement yeah. and just inevitably doing the type of work I've been doing. How do you, that's one of the things that's sort of blown my mind about people who are in shape in their thirties mm-hmm. or forties mm-hmm. is like, how are you finding the time to move or do time. anything? Totally. And I know a lot of people in our generation have started to move towards like standing desks. Yeah. Um, Jake has a, a lot of yeah. people getting like treadmills and stuff to, for the office. I have a treadmill in my studio mm-hmm. that when I'm writing and I hit like a, a writer's block or mm-hmm. some, I, I, walk for a long time and that's always helped my brain move but this is different i think it's the combination of um and we are we are being very careful because initially it's like is this going to be something we just can't sustain is it going to be two days into this we're like i'm dying for something but that's why i bring up the nutrisystem diet because when we tried that we were miserable and we've Mm. also done juice diets in the past juice detoxes do you ever do the whole 30 no. I became angry on that. I like <laughs> they call it the whole there's something about like month 2 angry you or something like that. I just got so pent up and upset I had to go off of it. We did a juice diet for a while. I don't remember which one or what it was called, but she had ordered, you know, boxes of these yeah. juices and uh it's like we're we're going to do this. We can 
we can do this. And <laughs> a day or two into it, I was like hallucinating. Yeah. We were, we watched that movie. I think it's called falling down with Michael Douglas. Where oh yes. He's like yes. just sh- start shooting up restaurants yeah. and stuff. And I was like, I feel like I'm like going nuts right now. Yeah. I feel like something's happening to my brain. And I was driving to Lompoc late at night to do recording sessions and driving back at like one or two in the morning. Oh, and I was just thinking like, I am like, kind of losing my mind right now and not in a good way. No. And so we stopped that. And then, so with the Nutrisystem diet, it was just always feeling miserable. Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like we're not putting anything into our bodies. We're like eating cardboard with spaghetti sauce on it. And then they had these fake Cheetos that were like, I know how much you love Cheetos. They they were Cheetos puffs essentially, but they were made, they were plant-based and the powder, the cheese powder on them was, you know, nothing yes and it was the saddest (laughs) like we would eat all of our meals for the day and it's like did we already finish everything we did and she's like but you can still have a bag of the cheetos like okay and so i was like putting them in my mouth and just holding them there for as long as i could and then i would swallow it and it's like it didn't even taste good but i'm trying to savor it and so the whole time we were doing that it was like what are we doing and this is the first time that we've gotten this far and thought I could do this for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And I also, um, when I was a little kid, I went to the YMCA day camp mm-hmm. and my parents were like, you know, they'd make us lunch in the morning and they'd ask what we wanted. And my brother and I both always wanted peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And Love so my dad told us up front, you're not going to, you're going to get so burnt out on these. Mm-hmm. So almost like a challenge, we just never requested anything else. Yeah. So for three solid years for breakfast or for for lunch every day he would pack us peanut butter and jelly mm-hmm. we never got tired of it no and it's like a donut like, there's <laughs> something about it that's very donut like i i would eat it every day if yeah. i could so it's i i think i'm very good at being stubborn and being mm-hmm. challenged like you're not going to be able to keep this up you're not going to be able to eat the same thing every day yeah and it's like actually i'm really good at that <laughs> really good at sticking to something well sure you're a finisher you're a completer <laughs> i'm telling you you were talking about the um my time real quick you were talking about walking when you have ideas mm-hmm. there's a lot of have you ever heard of emdr i motion no um this is important i don't want to mess it up um it is a form of therapy that um gets your right and left brains integrating and talking to each other. I'm sure any clinical psychologist is having a heart attack right now (laughs) as I describe it. It's called eye movement desensitization. Um, Sorry, people. Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. It's extremely big right now. What it involves is um, you can either have somebody, uh, a therapist can either have someone sit down and do therapy with them, ask them questions, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy and have the person put their eyes back and forth like this, uh, left and right. Or more commonly now, the therapist will give the person buzzers in each hand that will go right, left, right, left. As they do therapy, eyes closed, concentrating. The person who came up with it discovered the power of right, left, right, left when she was walking through Central Park, right, left, right, left. There is something very elemental and real in terms of reprocessing things. 
that comes from right, left, right, left. It has to do with the brain. Mm -hmm. um, and it has to do, I think, with the dynamic movement of right, left, right, left. But when you get on your treadmill next time, I mean, honest to God, there is something that works there. I've, with a therapist, I've dredged up crazy, crazy truths and clarity from doing EMDR. Um, so it's not... It's not just like a, huh, that's fun. I get good things out of walking. Yeah. It's actually extremely critical. Yeah. So there's my little <laughs> push for EMDR. When I first started attending like community college, mm -hmm. it was maybe 10 blocks from my mom's house. And for the first time I started walking there because it was close. And that was when I had the biggest yes. like wave of creativity mm -hmm. and my mom brings this up all the time she's like you remember when you would walk to school by the time you walked home you always had a new song idea yeah. and you'd go record it and the next day you'd walk to school and come back with a new mm -hmm. one and it's all about right left right left it movement is. it's yeah. just about walking and, and firing both sides of your brain mm -hmm. and a few years later I um, was working on this project with some people who were really into I think they call it binaural meditation. Mm -hmm. So it's basically you're you're making like meditation drone sort of music, but right, but it left, moves right, left, back and forth mm -hmm. in your headphones from the right to the left at a very specific rate mm -hmm. that triggers the hemispheres of your brain as if you're walking, and it's it's really powerful stuff mm -hmm. that I've I've noticed um, anytime that I'm jammed up and I can't get mm -hmm. a good idea across. I get up. I mean, I did that the whole time I wrote the podcast too. I'd be working on a script mm -hmm. and I'd hit a point where it's like, I have to stand up and just pace for a couple minutes. Pacing. Yes. It's, right. I'm a big pacer and mm -hmm. I can't take a phone call without going outside mm -hmm. and walking around my whole backyard the whole time I'm talking. I can't sit still when I'm mm -hmm. working on something. That's so that's so another reason that covering the trial again, it, it went against all of my instincts to move around yeah. and like to process that way that you have to stay very still mm -hmm. to the, to the point that you know a bailiff will give you a little signal if you're moving too much or mm -hmm. if you're um because they think you're reaching for your phone or something oh. you're going to record and yeah. that there was such high security in that courtroom and so it was nerve-wracking to have to sit still for all that time and then you stand up and you're like ow like yeah. everything's sore they were already uncomfortable wooden pews that and were you're sitting scribbling in all scribbling the whole time yeah yeah. So everything hurt. Yeah. So that's a big piece of this too, is just like, wow, I can move now. I can mm -hmm. like walk and go places Yeah, and definitely it's, helps the brain fire. It totally does. Coming down from a mountain, hiking up, painful, coming down, wild creativity, yeah. um, especially if I'm on my own. Um, well, anyway, we can talk about creativity forever. Um, but yeah, I really admire the way you tackle ideas. You don't just talk about them, you do them. And that's really special in our community, but just, you know, in the world pushing, I think evolving humanity, pushing it forward requires people who are willing to say yes and try something. Um, but because this is technically a food podcast, what would you eat, drink, and who would you be with on your last day on earth? <laughs> um, wow. You can't pretend like you don't think I'm going to ask you that. <laughs> well, as I, editor of the Consumed Podcast, you know I do. Yeah, but going in, I was like, I don't really know what we're going to talk about well, here, so here I wasn't is. really sure if it was even going to make it to that. Hmm. Um, but I have thought about it several times that I've heard you ask, and usually I don't think too far because I'm like, I don't know, that's a hard question. I don't want to <laughs> get into that. But um, like just going with my gut instinct, like mm -hmm. the first things that popped into my head, um, turkey sub. 
<laughs> I'm okay with that right now. Um, but just um, when, I, when I think about it being my last day, my thought is all of the fear that I have about, I know like when I'm eating a donut, for instance, mm. I haven't eaten a donut since I was a kid and felt okay. And felt like happy about it. Yeah, because yeah. when I'm eating it, the, all I'm thinking is this is so bad that I'm doing Same, this. Yeah. And so I just can't enjoy stuff the way that I used to. So I think if I knew that it was going to be my last day, I would just delve into all the things that I feel that way about. And the first one that popped up was, I think I could just eat a vat of macaroni and cheese. Yeah, a just, I, just endless amounts of macaroni and cheese. Mm-hmm. Um, I just talked to my dad for the first time in a long time the other day, and he brought up shrimp fettuccine, mm-hmm. which is something that when I was growing up, both of my parents made, and I haven't had it in decades now, like yeah. since I was little. And I thought, wow, like, I would probably feel pretty bad eating it now. It's so buttery and it's so full of carbs. But if I had nothing left, I would just drown in some shrimp fettuccine. Not because you're trying to like hide feelings, but to actually enjoy it. it, it, What it is with that and with the macaroni and cheese is when I'm eating it, I never feel like I'm done. It's Mm -hmm. one of those foods that I feel like I just never get sick of. So when I finish a bowl of macaroni and cheese... I'm usually thinking, I wish there was a couple more pots full of this <laughs> because I genuinely have never hit a wall where I've thought, oh, that's enough. I've yeah, hit yeah. enough. But most foods I do. Most yeah. foods, here's how food-based the Cajun culture is that mm-hmm. my dad grew up in. They have words for different types of getting full. So when I was growing up, we, uh, and I've, I don't even know how to spell it to Google it, but we had this phrase, the dedan. So when okay. you've been eating food and you get really sick of that food specifically, yes. but you're still hungry or you could still eat other things, but you're like, I've just overdosed on that one flavor. Yeah. My dad would say, oh, you got the dedan. I am dying. We talk <laughs> about this at this table all the time. The kids, I'm like, they want ice cream after dinner, but you didn't finish your real food. Well, but I, I'm, it's just I'm tired that, of right? this thing. Yeah, And it's something that like I don't think exists outside of Cajun culture is one word for that feeling. And so it's obviously Cajun French. And um, there's also the Malika, which I think is spelled like mal, like mal au cur, like bad of heart. Okay. Yes. And, um, but when my dad says it with his very thick accents, like you got the Malika (laughs) and that's sort of the same thing. Like where you've, you've eaten yourself to a place where you just don't feel good anymore and you need a break, but you're not done. (laughs) And, and that's something that in Cajun culture, I feel like they're just never finished eating. Mm. It's about like, I, I filled up, I'm, I'm sore, I need to lay down, <laughs> mm-hmm. but just mostly so we can start planning for the next meal. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of people die young in Louisiana, mm-hmm. um, a, a lot of heart disease, a lot of problems down there. And, um, so it's something that I don't, I don't eat that way, mm-hmm. but I was raised that way. That's in my household. It was all about what my dad is cooking next. Mm-hmm. And he and my mom bonded initially when they first met, um, they were never really like a, there was never any longevity to their relationship. They just sort of met on a whim. Mm-hmm. They started dating. My mom got pregnant mm-hmm. and it was like, okay, here we go. We're going to get married now. But really what they connected over, I think was cooking. Mm-hmm. And so my mom taught him how to make a lot of California dishes mm-hmm. that he then took back to Louisiana and they're mind blown over a simple quesadilla. The really? way, so my mom makes quesadillas with black olives and, green chilies love green and chilies. um and that's it and i mean they're 
fried and flour tortilla another thing yeah Uh and another thing you could just eat for days Mm -hmm. just endless amounts so when my dad makes my mom's quesadilla recipe he feeds his entire family it's he'll fill their freezers with this and they're mind blown by it like where did you learn how to make this this is not something we have in louisiana so it was that um dill dip was really big. That is my, that like a cream, like a sour cream dip? Yeah, it's like yeah. a ranch, um, almost like a ranch dressing, but with dill and Beaumont seasoning in it. Okay. And my dad made it a very specific way that sort of made it his own, and now it's a hit at every party. Famous. And we, we all try to do it, and we can never get it the same way as my dad's. And um, scalloped potatoes, my mom taught oh, him yeah. how to make, and then he did his own thing with it, and now he's the mm. scalloped potato guy in Louisiana. And so... I grew up in a very like food based mm-hmm. household, mm-hmm. Um, at least on my dad's end. My mom, my, I mean, both of my parents cook very well, mm-hmm. but my dad just doesn't think about anything else except yeah. cooking. And um, I think he was very proud of that, that when he and my mom separated, that he was not a typical dad. He, he could sort feed of filled you. that role too. Mm-hmm. And he was always excited to make food for us in a way that I don't think we appreciated until we were adults looking back and going, wow, my dad really, really stepped up with filling in all of those other roles. I had no idea about any of that for you. I didn't realize, well, it sounds like they're both very creative in their way. Um, And so you come by it honestly, but I didn't realize um, anything about your dad's, uh, the culture and the way that it translated to you here in real time as a kid. Yeah, it, I don't think I was aware that my dad was different until mm-hmm. I got older and people would ask where he was from because they knew he had an accent. Mm-hmm. I didn't even hear an accent. I just heard, I thought my dad spoke exactly like yeah. I spoke and people would always ask him, where are you from? Mm. And especially since he's moved back when I turned 18, he moved back. Um, his accent is thick, mm-hmm. but he still sounds like himself to me. Yeah. But the very first time I put Ali on speakerphone and let her hear his voice, she was like, I can't understand anything <laughs> he's saying really, because it's so clear to me. I mean, it's, uh... and I pick it up so quickly too. When we go back to visit or even talking to him on the phone for 10 yeah. minutes, my vocabulary instantly, you know, that yeah. code switching from mm-hmm. from the way I typically speak to speaking the way that they speak mm-hmm. a lot faster, um, a lot more informal, switching mm-hmm. verb and noun places, just it's... It's uh, that synesthesia again, actually, as you talk yeah, about it. Yeah. I, I also do great impressions. Like I can, yeah. like when I talk to my dad for a few minutes and then I tell everybody, here's what my dad said. Mm-hmm. I always do it in his voice. And that's something I think I got from my mom. When she tells a story, she does everybody's voice spot yeah, on. Yeah. And it's something I picked up on that it's like, I do great impressions when I want to. <laughs> I've heard your Kip impression from <laughs> Napoleon Dynamite. Right. It is outrageous. Yeah. <laughs> you are so generous. Everything's going on right now for you, but you took time to talk to me for an hour and a half. And I appreciate that. Congratulations on everything. And I'm thinking about you as you go forward with whatever's next on your plate and just wishing you, um, I think mostly the kind of security that you are feeling right now about doing music. I hope that that continues that, you know, just because you've had this big project in the rear view for the most part, now you can focus on something that just keeps your juices flowing and keeps you feeling alive and satisfied. Thank you. And I, I hope you find the same in, in writing. I, Thank I know you. that it's, it's difficult to say words like memoir and yes, not, not uh, have 
second thoughts about them, but um, I know we, we really didn't delve into that too much, but I hope that mm. um, I hope you take some some inspiration from something I've totally. accidentally said that I don't realize might push you into that because um, that's certainly what I've taken from you. I think just yeah. from the times that we have talked about writing and creativity, mm-hmm. I feel like I always come away feeling excited about it again. Yeah, same. Likewise. Thanks, friend. You're very welcome. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Consumed Podcast. Check in on June 1st for another season of conversations with eaters, drinkers, thinkers, and makers at the heart of California. This is Jamie Lewis. See you then.